All right, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And uh, as usual on Tuesdays, I'm here with our friend Hugo Lindgren, and we're going to talk about the issues of the day. So, Hugo, welcome again. And uh, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about Afghanistan, which is a little bit of a, an, I guess the, the, the bros call it an audible. Um, but this morning, we, we were going to talk today about the sort of return to office and the sort of broader issue of office culture, which we are going to get to in a week or two. But uh, we decided to talk about Afghanistan today, or, or largely you decided you wanted to because you woke up and you had some you had some uh, exchanges with other friends over the weekend. Um, maybe you could just explain what you found yourself kind of feeling a little differently about it than a lot of people you talked to. Yeah, I, I, there's a group of, of people from politics who are all really, really smart, and there's sort of a constant text chain going on any given topic. And over the course of, I said, the last four or five days, there's just been this constant lament by all of them um, as uh, about Afghanistan and how bad this is and how could we be leaving and what a mess. And, and I had kind of stayed out of it. And then finally this morning, I, I jumped back in and said, like, well, what did you expect to happen? Right. I mean, this is exactly the history of Afghanistan, exactly the history of what happens when the U.S. tries to occupy other countries and either nation build or just sort of, you know, maintain the peace there. Um, and this was totally predictable. And the question isn't whether or not Biden's making the wrong choice by, by removing the, the troops, because if the next president, if president 20 years is faced with the same choice, it'd, it'd be the exact same circumstances that we have right now. It's a it's really a question of what was the decision making that led to the choice to do this, to do the Iraq and Afghanistan war in the way that we did it? What went wrong and how could we do it better going forward? Well, let me ask you. So so I have a bunch of very just basic questions. And so I'm going to I'm going to run through them. not necessarily quick, but sort of one at a time. Um, and, you know, I guess we should offer the caveat. You know, you're, you're obviously not some geopolitical expert on Afghanistan. You've never been to Afghanistan. Um, so, so a lot of what we're talking about is sort of obviously on the, on the, on the, uh, on the level of an engaged sort of American, you know, sort of citizen. Well, um, yeah. And I would say this, actually, my, my angle is I think you and the listeners will see is actually really a domestic political angle of which I'm supposedly an expert, um, <laughs> because, um, it, it really is the decision-making factors that lead to things like choosing to invade Afghanistan in the first place. And I would argue that most of the decisions that we make are are based on politics and not outcomes. And we're so, we're so bad at aligning goals and process that uh, we do the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Uh, and that's what happened here. Okay. So let's start with the, like the biggest of questions. Like what did the United States get wrong about uh, about getting into Afghanistan, staying there, and then eventually sort of pulling out. What, what's what's the big picture take on it? I mean, the big picture take is this is a first of all, invading other countries and trying to rule them generally doesn't work. It only probably works back in like the days of the Roman Empire, or the Greek Empire, or the British Empire, when there was no democracy, no rights, no anything, and and they basically just you know exploited all of it. I guess you could do that. 
But assuming you're not going to do that and you're trying to build an economy and a democracy and a society, um, it, it doesn't work. You know, we fail at it. Russia failed at it. Everyone fails at it. Um, it, it if anything, the smartest sort of attempt at this is what the Chinese doing in paying for kind of big infrastructure projects in Africa and, and Latin America to gain influence in those in those regions. Also parts of Europe, too. Aren't they doing a lot in Italy? I don't know. Um, I'll, I'll take your word for it. But yeah, I'm sure Italy needs the money. So pr probably so. Um, yeah, you know, they must be because when I was in Greece, it, it came up there as well. So that makes sense. But but ultimately, you know, we've seen this movie before. Right? We had Vietnam. The, the Soviets had Afghanistan. Um, and, and look, after 9-11, and, and like you, I was in New York for 9-11, and because I was working for Schumer at the time, I was down at Ground Zero the next day and, you know, pretty intimately involved in everything going on around it for the next year. Um, and uh, there was clearly an imperative to respond, but there's different ways that you could have responded, right? You could have said, okay, uh, we believe that al-Qaeda and bin Laden did this. We believe that Saddam Hussein did this. Um, we are going to take them out, right? And those are targeted military efforts and strikes, um, much like we ended up doing, and, and you know this because you were, uh, have worked with all the people who made Zero Dark Thirty, um, ended up doing with, with bin Laden anyway. He wasn't even in Afghanistan when we got him. So, and the alternative was, let's have giant invasions and ground wars in the Middle East uh, and in kind of the whatever part of, of, of you know, Asia you consider Afghanistan to be in, um, where uh, we will invade and occupy countries that don't want us there. Uh, there's no track record of being able to do that successfully. And we will spend well over a trillion dollars in doing so. And look, I, I think Bush made the choice that benefited his donor base, benefited Cheney and Halliburton, um, benefited Fox News. He, you know, he kind of played to the base and they were encouraging him to invade and he did. But if you look at the ROI, like let's say that the generals before Bush, uh, you know, responded to 9-11, you know, laid out the options for him and said, look, you know, here's what we can realistically achieve in each of these cases. It's hard to see how anyone could say, like, yeah, let's send ultimately, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops to these two totally ungovernable countries, try to turn them into democracies, fail, and then at some point have to leave and see them all go back to exactly what they were before anyway. I am sure someone told him some version of that. And, you know, that was not the choice that most benefited his politics and therefore not what he did. Um, but to me, this was all totally foreseeable. So, so uh, you're, you're obviously not citing any, you know, uh, uh, secret uh, information or intelligence sources of your own. You're talking about sort of basic views of, of uh, world history, of American history. So why do we get it wrong? You know, it, why does someone decide that this is the time that invading another country is going to work out like what what's i mean you, you cited a bunch of playing to the base it's all look, it's all driven by media and politics it's, it's it's the same theme we talk about in the show all the time which is every policy output is the result of a political input um, and look you remember a lot of our listeners remember it was very raw and very emotional after 9 11. Um, i was at ground zero when bush jumped up on the fire truck and and you know, vowed revenge, and, and I was cheering along with everyone else, uh, you know, that down there. So I, I get what led to those decisions in some ways, but ultimately, um, we, we make decisions based on kind of broad-based ideology and, and tangible political benefit, 
and don't really align with any particular outcome. So let me give you a domestic example. Um, the Biden tax plan and, and the American Families Plan that would double the capital gains tax and, and other forms of taxation. Um, in and of itself, bringing in more money so government can solve more societal problems isn't necessarily a bad outcome. The problem is... Is it necessarily? I mean, it's a good outcome, no? Well, if it actually works, right? But I would say that, number one, for a lot of the people that Biden is trying to appeal to, um, the ends and the means is the same thing, which is the goal is to raise taxes solely to sort of be punitive in some way towards people who have more money, um, not to generate revenue for a specific purpose. And then even for those who are looking at it a little more broadly than that, um, they still think, oh, we passed the law, we solved the problem. Right. And that happens in government at all levels all the time, which is they pass a bill, they appropriate spending, they generate more tax revenue. And in their mind, schools are fixed, hospitals are fixed, whatever it is. Right. All you've done is, is put a plan together on how you can try to fix it. Um, but everyone stops paying attention after that. And so most of the money is wasted. Why did it take so long for these lessons to to? Well, I guess the lessons have been obvious for a long time in Afghanistan. But but. Why do you think Trump didn't pull out? Because he didn't want these headlines. He just couldn't stand the idea of the the big helicopters circling uh, Kabul, like taking everybody out. Yeah, afraid of being called weak. Look, Trump, to a certain extent, is an isolationist. And if anyone from an ideological standpoint should have understood this and said, this is just a total waste of money and lives and everything else, it, it should have been him. But clearly, you know, even though he would... Uh, criticized the generals and the military publicly. I think he was still pretty afraid of them privately. And, you know, generally the military, like everyone, never wants to cede any budget or power or influence or anything else. And so they persuade every president that you have to do it the way that they say, and, and it's the only way that this can work. And yet, I don't know how many presidents, you had Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, four presidents. Uh, getting advice from the military that it's just completely counter to, to common sense, right? And that even though Biden's taking a lot of shit right now uh, for his decision here, I think he's making the right one. Well, he's getting shit not just for the decision, but for what appears to be a hasty pulling of the plug, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of people who need protecting. For 20 years. Um, well, is he? I mean, I, I guess I guess it's hard to say, right? Because you know, I, I watch CNN. I see the guys who were, uh, you know, some of the former servicemen and some of the diplomats who served there talking about about you know former translators and other people who helped the U.S. government in in Afghanistan feeling you know being left isolated, not being able to get visas, not being able to to, to evacuate their families. I mean, it you're does always going to have that problem at the moment you decide to evacuate, regardless, right? right? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't find ways to help the translators and the other people and give them visas. And I'm generally uh, a proponent of a lot more immigration anyway. So to me, it's it's not a big problem. Um, but, you know, look, Biden, in fairness to him, throughout the 20 years that we've been in Afghanistan, he was either a U.S. senator, who I think maybe was even the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, the vice president, or the president with a couple of years in between during Trump. So he has as much of a perspective on this as anybody. He's been thinking about this thing for two decades. I don't know how you could call what he's doing hasty. Keeping a sort of quick strike force of a couple of thousand people there to, to beat the crap out of uh, you know the, the Taliban when they do really horrific things, that, that's, that's what, what's the problem with that? I mean, we have, we have tens of thousands of soldiers all over the world. Yeah, but we have those tens of thousands of soldiers generally stationed 
not to act in punitive ways towards other governments, but uh, to be in strategic locations so that if the U.S. finds itself in a military conflict, uh, we're able to respond to it as quickly as possible. So, look, I mean, the Taliban's terrible. I'm, I'm not defending them in any way. But are they worse than what China's doing to the Uyghurs or, or worse than what's happening to the Rohingya in, in Myanmar or what's happening in Sudan or Venezuela? I mean, there are so many places in this world that are fucked up where you have dictators and terrible people looking at Russia. Um, and, and we don't do anything about it because it's not in our strategic or military interest to, to do so or economic. Um, and in this case, because Afghanistan and Iraq were, you know, kind of third world countries that, that didn't have that much military or economic prowess, we felt comfortable going in and doing that. But look, if you if you say to me, we need to develop a moral standard by which we intervene militarily um, across the world, and that's going to be our standard. We are not going to stand for genocide. We are not going to stand for vast violations of human rights. We are not going to stand for whatever it is that we don't want to stand for. And we will make the commitment and the sacrifice in terms of resources and American soldiers and lives to uphold those values. Like, okay, that's at least an intellectual framework that I can understand. But if you just say, oh, we have to do this to smack down the Taliban, like, no, we don't, because we don't do that anywhere else. So you, you talked about the moment, you talked about being there when Bush climbed up on the pile and, and, and feeling very sort of patriotic and kind of the sort of a little bit of bloodlust for vengeance, that kind of thing. So obviously, in retrospect, there could have been a smarter policy move by the by by Bush and by subsequent presidents, but but how could he have responded to the the emotional moment? He had to do something. What do you think could have been different? Um, I, I think that they could have sent targeted airstrikes uh, into either Baghdad or Kabul or, or anywhere else in Afghanistan or Iraq if they wanted to. Um, I think that uh, they could have said. We are hunting these top 25 leaders of al-Qaeda and still have the trading cards and all of that other stuff like that. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that they, they, they could have tried to take out Saddam Hussein. And yes, it's probably a violation of some sort of international law to assassinate a foreign leader. But, you know, you still did that anyway, effectively by invading his country. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, you could have done things that had symbolic value that wouldn't have risked, you know, that tens of thousands or hundreds, ultimately thousands of American lives and troops that were deployed there. And I'm pretty sure that between the two wars, we spent well over a trillion dollars. Wait, I, I want to jump in there, Bradley, and just cite a statistic here because there was a funny correction uh, in the New York Times lead editorial, uh, which uh, I guess when it was originally written said that we'd spent $83 billion in um, in Afghanistan. Apparently, we spent $2 trillion. So they were off by uh, a factor of 20. Yeah, by the small margin. But, you know, shocking because the New York Times never makes any mistakes. So I, I can't believe that they would make one here. Um, but but putting aside the the incompetence of their of their fact. Uh, yeah. But look, you just led me down a path now. All of a sudden, I'm just my my blood loss is, is for The New York Times. Um, but um, <laughs> but look. $2 trillion for Afghanistan, assuming that number is accurate. And you got to figure at least another trillion for Iraq. So let's just go with $3 trillion as the number. I think Iraq might Imagine be more, if but whatever. Yeah, it's trillion. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Imagine if we took $3 trillion and had invested that in homeland security, in counterterrorism, in cybersecurity, in upgrades to critical infrastructure, even if we didn't put it into foreign aid or social programs or, or anything else, even if we solely stayed focused 
uh, on our physical security. I don't even know if you could have spent that much on all of that, but imagine how much more secure we would be today. So instead, it's 20 years later, yeah, bin Laden and Hussein are dead, but we never found any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and we knew there were never any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, and the Taliban came back in a matter of days, and we are still in many ways just as vulnerable uh, as we were 20 years ago because we spent our money and our time and our political capital fighting unwinnable foreign wars rather than shoring up our own defenses at home. Where do you think this leaves the United States in terms of like how and when to use the military going forward? I mean, it, it feels like it feels like just it's it's the last 20 years has been, you know, one object lesson after another of, of what not to do. So what do we do? The last I would say the last 60 years, right? And, you know, even Korea, I don't know. You know, I guess we won that war, but still, should we have been there? I don't know. You know, look, it seems to me that there are occasions where you say we have an overriding military interest and we're going to act, right? So if we are attacked, like Pearl Harbor, we respond. Um, if there is a war like World War One or Two where you see the entire world, world order about to topple, and then all of a sudden a foe in Germany that you wouldn't be able to defeat if they got more powerful, so you had to get in when you did, that makes sense to me. Or even if we had a clear doctrine around human rights and genocide and said, um, we are going to intervene in these situations, like, like Bosnia back in the 90s, um, that makes sense to me, right? But just the notion of like, we're going to kind of willy-nilly just pick fights to have and fights to avoid based on kind of what different groups are, are calling for, Fox News is calling for, the generals are calling for. You know, that's the tail wagging the dog. We, we can't do things that way. So I have to say Biden, to me, is the first president that's really shown any discipline around this. So we're going to move this back firmly in the frame of, of domestic politics, since that's your area. Um Obviously, this is a serious humanitarian crisis. It looks to be one. Uh, it may well be a geopolitical crisis of, of, of a kind as well. How much of a political crisis is this for Biden? It, it's not. Uh, it, it's getting a lot of attention right now because uh, the Taliban is, is advancing very quickly. Um, it's getting a lot of attention because we're coming up on the 20th anniversary uh, of 9-11. But fundamentally, I, I don't believe that American voters really care all that much um, I think that they uh, only really vote on and think about foreign policy issues if American troops and lives are, are being lost. Um, but outside of that, I don't think it really enters into people's consciousness that much one way or the other. So um, one, I don't think, despite all the bad press he's getting, that this is a long-term political problem for Biden. You know, could some Washington Post-ABC News poll in five days show that he's down a few points because of it? Sure. Um, but I don't think I don't think it's a 2024 problem. And, and on top of that, my guess is that my view here, which is let's not fight unwinnable, stupid wars um, and let's save American lives and American money. It, it's pretty much the view of most people anyway. And I think it's sort of the view of Biden here. So um, I, I don't think he's even necessarily that far off. Uh, from where the American people are, even if all the experts on both sides and all the think tanks and everyone else are criticizing him. So I want to uh, I want to mention I want to tell a, a brief. It's not exactly a story, but uh, when I was at the Times Magazine, uh, one of my one of my editors there, Joel Lovell, brought in this young writer named Luke Mogelson, who was a young guy and he wanted to write about Afghanistan, which was pretty unusual for young writers that I encountered. 
Um, he wasn't even on staff. He just literally wanted to go there and report from there. Um, and he did some incredible stories. He did a story uh, about the hospital in Kabul that treats injured children. He he embedded with the Afghan National Army, went out on patrol, um, which was I, I, I think he may have been the only reporter to do that. Um, it's possible the times that other people did it at some point. Um, but that was a super dangerous uh, su- and super interesting. Anyway, he, he, he went out on patrol with the Afghan National Army. Um, he, he just did all this incredible stuff. He's now at the New Yorker. Um, I mentioned him because if you want to understand uh, what's happened in Afghanistan uh, over the last decade, in particular, when he's been been busy reporting there, the stories, his stories are the ones to start with. Just incredible reporting, deeply empathic writing and and just not a trace of the sort of war correspondence bravado that you sort of occasionally run into. Um, so Luke Mogelson, you should Google him. You should check him out. Um, he, he's really like uh, people in the journalism world uh, know and, and admire him. But outside of that, uh, he's not as widely known as he should be. So I wanted to put in a plug for Luke Mogelson. Um, I also wanted to mention to you, Bradley, because you enjoy uh, things that make the New York Times um, look bad. Um, they were in the email, in one of the like 50 emails they sent me this morning, uh, they referred to the Taliban's history of mismanaging the country's human resources, <laughs> which, I, <laughs> which I thought was hilariously stupid. Um, that would deserve a gold medal in the hundred meter euphemism. Um, so I guess, you know, we were going to, we were going to talk, uh, today also about, uh, the return to the office, office culture, but I think we're not going to do that. Um, given the, the gravity of what we've been talking about, that seems like perhaps a trivial shift. But I'm wondering if if there's anything you want to close with uh, on this subject. We're, we're not going to return to the war in Afghanistan uh, maybe ever again on this podcast, although I guess we don't know how things are going to go. Um, but I'm curious as we you know, we're going to we're going to get more bad news over the coming days. There's going to be some horrific stuff happening in Afghanistan by all um, by all indications. Um, what, what would you counsel sort of listeners of this as they're reading this Um is it important not to overreact? What, what's the what, what what's there to look for as 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 the sort of uh, the news of various horrors comes comes to the front? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think that look, this this is going to sound a little cold, I think, but whatever we read about in Afghanistan is happening all over the world, and we don't intervene in those places. Now, if you believe that we should, we have a moral imperative to do so. I think that's a very valid and legitimate position. And you could argue, therefore, we should be in Russia and China and lots of other places, too, right now. Um, But if you don't think that, then just bemoaning what's happening in Afghanistan without acknowledging um, that the same thing is happening everywhere else, but we're not doing anything about it, um, to me, it's just logically inconsistent and and unreal. unreal. Now, I personally don't think that we can invade and occupy every country in the world, um, which means to me, we should have a much more limited doctrine of, of intervention. Um, but, but even if you feel the other way, it, it, there's gotta be something that is more uh, morally and intellectually consistent um, and not just sort of finding one thing and screaming about it uh, without understanding the context. But um, all right, look, so a couple of quick thoughts there. And then just one, just, just to close with, you know, beyond saying that we need a, uh, more consistent intellectual and moral framework for, for military intervention and foreign policy. If, if we want to have a country that doesn't make stupid decisions like wasting literally trillions of dollars that could have gone to so many better causes and, and things. And, and tens of thousands of lives. You and tens of thousands of lives, right? Um, 
then you got to have a little more alignment between um, process and goals, right? And, you know, we constantly think we're, we're solving for the headline, we're solving for the tweet, we're solving for the next election. And, and what we're not really doing is thinking about, okay, if we make these choices, what's logically going to follow? What are our chances of succeeding uh, on whatever goal we have? And if they're not that high, um, why don't we do something else, even if it's not what the editorial boards and the cable pundits and everyone else are screaming for? So, you know, uh, for as long as we govern that way, um, then I think that we're always going to find ourselves in situations like this, whether abroad or uh, here at home. And so, uh, look, asking for more intelligent governance is not exactly a, a novel concept, um, but I, I do think this is a really good example of uh, when politics drives all of the decision making, you literally, in this case, have trillions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives, if, if you add in everyone from Iraq uh, who died in, this, in their wars, uh, lost um, simply because of poor decision making. Thanks, Bradley. Talk to you next week. Thanks, See you guys.